I'm Aaron David Miller, and this is Carnegie Connects. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in this world of ours. I truly hope you're safe, uh, sound, and above all, healthy. I'm Aaron David Miller, a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and welcome to Carnegie Connects, a set of virtual discussions, at least for now, on issues of critical importance to America and to the world. Today, I'm very pleased to host the inestimable Mary B. McCord, currently the Executive Director of the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection and a visiting professor at Georgetown Law School. Um, formerly, Mary served as the Acting Assistant Attorney General for National Security at the U.S. Department of Justice. Mary, welcome, or I should say welcome back uh, to Carnegie Connects. We're back in March of 2021, uh, several months after January 6th. You helped us unravel along with two other co colleagues, uh, Rachel Kleinfeld and Mark Ginsburg, um, helped us unravel the rise of far-right extremism in America. I must say that of all the Carnegie Connects we've done, I find the, ses the sessions devoted to America to be the most complex and worrisome. And the landscape is, is, is a troubling one. I'm a great believer in the regenerative and recuperative powers of the American Republic. I think a compelling argument could be made that we've been through worse at various points in our history, but I don't think, and I think this is the critical point, we've ever quite been here the way we've been today. You have what the political scientists call pernicious polarization, countries divided into mutually antagonistic political camps, which have morphed into informing the way people look at their identities and their social networks. Uh, I saw one poll in 1960, when you asked Americans whether or not they would object if their sons or daughters married members of the opposite party, 6% said they would object. Today, that that same poll, Gallup or Pew, I think it was Gallup, 45% of um, Democrats, 35% of Republicans would object if their sons or daughters married a member of the opposition party. You have a political system which is under incredible stress and has failed to accommodate the sort of consensus that we need to address a lot of issues, abortion, guns, immigration, climate. Um, and I voted for Republicans and Democrats and worked for Republicans and Democrats, but you have a political system in which one of our parties um, seems to have... Um, elevated the notion of undermining the American political system and confidence of the voter in our electoral politics. And it even seeks to find ways to shape the vote counting process. Sitting members of Congress engage in conspiracy theory and political hate speech. White nationalist groups, even though, as you yourself have pointed out, are barred, banned by federal and state law. Um, paramilitary organizations are barred by statute continue to operate, presumably with some impunity. And then you have, of course, guns, specifically long guns, automatic weapons with high capacity magazines that result in these terrible mass shootings, even though they only constitute about 1% of gun fatalities in this country. So, Mary McCord, let me ask you, um, is my 
painting the landscape unnecessarily negative? Uh, if so, how? And then how would you categorize the the basic or prioritize the threats to our domestic security today? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, and it's nice to be back and return and uh, talk about these topics. But the topics are really dark. I mean, you paint a very, very dire dire picture. And I don't really disagree with anything that you laid out in terms of the landscape. Um, there's no question. I mean, we've had a civil war in our history, right? And we do we are not in a civil war right now. So we have certainly been through you know, worse and deadlier times. But certainly in my lifetime, um, and I'm not going to say how old I am, but <laughs> in my lifetime, this is the most polarized I've seen us. And this is the most uh, dangerous in terms of the threats to our democracy that I've experienced. Um, and I think it's a result of a few things. You know, I've long, you know, I, I was obviously in leadership at the Department of Justice and National Security doing counterterrorism work. Uh, that was like 2014 to 2017, when for a good portion of that time, ISIS was one of the major threats in terms of, uh, you know, a national security threat. This is a foreign terrorist organization that declared a, its own caliphate in um, June of 2014. Uh, before that, I was a prosecutor for, for 20 years, a federal prosecutor. So I've certainly had a lot of experience with all kinds of different threats to public safety as well as national security. So we always have problems with violence. And some of that as political violence, whether it's international terrorism or domestic terrorism or domestic extremist violence. What I think is so different now um, is that the political violence has sort of collapsed into the threats to our democratic processes here from within domestically. So it's no longer that you know, and we can get to the topic of lone wolves. It's no longer that you have some fringe extremists who have grievances, they have easy, ready access to incredibly lethal semi-automatic assault, assault style rifles. And they have, when, when they are so motivated, the ability to inflict damage, uh, severe damage on groups of people, including through, you know, mass shootings, injuries, deaths, um, and real terrorism, you, ha you don't have just that. You have that in conjunction with doing it to further the erosion of our democratic processes, because thanks to things like um, the Stop the Steal movement, election denial, the fraud you know, the fraudulent claims, the fraudulent narrative that our elections are not secure and that the 2020 election, um, you know, is not valid. There's still people a year and a half after the election claiming in certain states, Wisconsin and elsewhere, that there's still the ability to decertify the vote, that Joe Biden is not the legitimate president. And there's efforts afoot that we'll probably talk about um, to insert essentially election deniers into key positions who will be responsible in upcoming elections for canvassing the vote and for certifying the vote. And so these this narrative has then fueled those actors who are actually willing to engage in acts of pol political violence as the rationale and the reason, and it's given them a, a veneer of credibility uh, and, and, and power because they feel like they've got agency from others who are propon proponents of the, of the false narrative. And I think January 6th is, you know, 
a perfect example of that, but it didn't end there because, you know, and I'm sorry to go on so for so long, but if you think about the fraudulent elector scheme and the other schemes that formed the basis of people to believe on January 6th, if they could just stop the counting and, you know, convince Vice President Pence and to reject the slates of the legitimate slates of electors from the swing states and in, instead accept these fraudulent states of electors, they could overrule the, the will of the people. And so that's where we saw these threats to our demo, democratic processes, the peaceful transition of power, votes actually, you know, counting and 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 uh, determining the outcome marry up with violence. You know, our conversation today is framed between two two uh, data points. Um, number one, yesterday, the Department of Homeland Security issued one of their terrorism bulletins, raising concerns that uh, several uh, high-profile events, they refer to the Supreme Court decision, they refer to uh, copycat mass shootings and uh, the upcoming midterms, uh, are events that could be exploited um, in the service of violence. And tomorrow, um, the January 6th, the House committee will begin its uh, first public hearings on the events of January 6th. I wanted to ask you, um, particularly about January 6th, I don't want to get into the committee's work, um, but 16 months later, has your assessment of what happened that day been altered uh, in, in any way? It, can you sort of help us understand January 6th, 16 months later? Ha have things gotten worse um, given what might have happened? Are we at a, a sort of stasis point? Where, where are we on this issue? Yeah, so, you know, I, I really had thought, uh, I think many of us did, um, a, you know, on both sides of the aisle, that January 6th would be sort of a, a, a wake-up moment. Like, we really, our democracy really is under threat, and we need to um, condemn this type of activity and, uh, you know, put it behind us and, and do better. And that's not at all what we've seen. So if we just go back to January 6th, you know, what we saw there, and we talked about this a little bit last year, is that we saw this confluence of all types of extremists from militia violent extremists like the Oath Keepers, Proud Boys, both both groups of which have been charged with seditious conspiracy among other charges. We saw uh, white supremacists, neo-Confederates. We saw accelerationist groups. Those are those who are trying to accelerate toward a civil war in order to create a white ethno state. We saw um, conspiracy theorists, QAnon and other conspiracy theorists all joined together, putting aside whatever their differences might be on a day-to-day -day basis, but all joined together in furtherance, again, of this whole stop the steal of this false narrative of a stolen election. And they were the foot soldiers to really do you know, former President Trump's bidding that day, but they couldn't have really probably done it alone because what we saw is that because so many people had come out, including people who probably legitimately had doubts about the integrity of the election results. I mean, certainly that's something that had been, 
being said day after day after day by not only the president and his surrogates, but also by, you know, people in, in the media. And so some who came to the rallies just really to be part of that rally, but they get swept up into what these others who were more radical and more prepared to engage in violence, they got swept up into that uh, mob, that mob became a riot. And you had people uh, who were probably doing things they never intended to do, like, you know, violently assault police officers, break windows, scale the walls of the Capitol, creep in through, you know, windows and doors and ransack the place. So that's why I thought it would be an aha moment. You know, the the charges kept, started coming in, arrests, indictments. And I think, you know, it really caused people to step back and realize this isn't, this isn't role playing. This isn't LARPing. This isn't a video game. This is reality. And what they did was extremely violent and extremely um, seditious. It was an insurrection. But instead, what we've seen is uh, 16 months now of revisionist history, where we've even got one party, you know, referring to January 6th as though it was just an expression of First Amendment rights to protest and to demonstrate. And, you know, we all have eyes to see the video. We all have ears to hear the video. And there's no one who can look at what happened that day and think that was some sort of peaceful First Amendment protected protest. And on top of that, the this notion of a, of a, you know, a fraudulent election, someone in the White House who shouldn't be there, who didn't actually win, that has been doubled down on by Donald Trump, who this day, to this day, still says almost probably every day, probably multiple times a day, that he really won the election. It's been doubled down on by his surrogates. And shamefully, it's been adopted by elected officials, members of Congress, uh, officials in the states who, you know, use their, their credibility, their power and privilege to to propagate this type of false narrative. So rather than January 6th being that wake up moment, it instead has been, you know, just, I think in some ways, step one along this trajectory of uh, the continued idea that people, that, that because of, you know, a tyrannical uh, process which has inserted the wrong person into the White House, they have the right and in some cases even the duty to engage in in violence in order to correct that result. And, you know, some of the polling out there, I think some is a little bit too dramatic, but some of the polling out there, uh, whatever you look at, shows a, an alarming number of Americans um, who believe that violence, you know, may be acceptable in some circumstances. And so that's that's why, you know, I think as we look over the 16 months, what one would have thought would have really changed the discourse at high levels, which have, would have trickled down through our media and our and our social media um, uh, and hopefully, you know, started to bring some return to our democratic processes. We, we've really seen just the opposite. You know, I asked you back then whether or not January 6th was uh, drawn a... Um, uh, an image from American history was a, a sort of Lexington and Concord. Um, uh, I think Enrique Terrio referred to the uh, winter palace, storming of the winter palace in terms of the Russian revolution, but, and it wasn't a video game, but that also goes for the 800 plus people that have been charged. 
And the real question in terms of a chilling impact this is the largest prosecution in the history of the Department of Justice ever. You've got maybe 840 plus people charged. Vast majority are not going to be charged with felonies, let alone seditious conspiracy. But doing jail time is not a video game. Three, four years in prison is a certain kind of reality. So I wonder if you could speak to the issue of the organized militias. Are these prosecutions likely to have an impact on three percenters, Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, as organized forces? I noticed a extraordinary story in the New York Times reported that that the, I think it was the Proud Boys have um, now participate in the Miami-Dade Republican Executive Committee. Uh, they've showed up at, at school board meetings to protest max, mask mandates. Has this has this uh, constrained the organized militia movement in America? Yeah. So, you know, in the immediately in the immediate aftermath of January 6th, as the arrests started, you know, being made, there definitely was a a lull in activity. Um, for one thing, people quit communicating over social media, uh, went into, you know, private chat rooms and that, that had occurred beforehand as well, but there's a lot of things that were available out on open social media. They lay, you know, they began laying low because they, they, they worried that everything was a honeypot, meaning everything was like a, um, you know, a, a law enforcement operation. Um, and, I think it had some sort of immediate impact, but over this course of the last year and a half, you know, they've been painted, they've painted themselves and others have, have also been willing to paint them as political prisoners. Um, and you've seen that again from elected officials, you've seen that at rallies. So I think they're using that in way to, to recruit and to propagandize and to even um, feel more emboldened. But the other thing they've done, and I think this is a direct result of trying to do things that will not land them in getting charges, is they've decentralized. And you you gave a perfect example with the Miami-Dade, but we're seeing this all over and we're seeing it actually come from some of the you know more far-right uh, internet platforms. For example, Gab, um, which, you know, a, a few weeks ago uh, issued on Telegram its strategy, which is focusing on county over country is really the only viable path forward at this point. Capture your local county, then several of them, then maybe your state, right? And then ultimately we get to the nation from that. And so that's what we're seeing in many, many places. We are seeing uh, militia members running for elected office. Now, happily in Idaho recently, that didn't go so well for those who were running, but we've seen them run for smaller law. Uh, those were for state level offices that, where they were un- a couple of candidates were unsuccessful, but we've seen successful um, uh, candidacies for things like you mentioned, like school boards and local county officials and election officials. We've seen them spearhead recall efforts of Republican county officials who uh, are not extreme, who are law, you know, respect law and order and, and, and did the right thing. And that's the case, I think, in many, many jurisdictions is that even for Republicans, if they were not willing to, you know, deny the election and potentially take action in the future to 
you know, monkey around with election results, they're getting ousted and they're getting ousted in many cases by militia members, their supporters, or others who are supported by militias and who are, um, you know, and, and the communities are feeling some intimidation and coercion by this. So I, so I think that it is going to take more than these prosecutions to, um, to really make a big impact. They will have an impact. And I think if the, if, you know, what we have seen so far is that the, the felony um, prosecutions so far who that have gone to trial have been all successful. They've all resulted in convictions. If I were charged with a felony, I would be getting pretty worried and really, really thinking about cooperating with the, with the government. And I do think we'll be seeing more and more guilty pleas and cooperation agreements as more and more felony trials re- result in convictions. Um, you know, the seditious conspiracy cases, those are, of course, felonies. They're serious. Historically, the government hasn't always had great success in prosecuting those charges. But I think this is very, very different because historically, they've oftentimes been prosecuted when the thing that was planned, the seditious that the sedition that they conspired to commit didn't actually come to fruition because it was thwarted by law enforcement in advance. Um, here, we saw it. I mean, it it happened. Uh, they they violently attacked the Capitol on January 6th. There's abundant evidence through digital evidence, both, you know, planning uh, communications, post-January 6th uh, communications, admitting to what they did, videos, photographs, audio, etc. There's abundant evidence of what their intent was. And so I think this will these will be very different prosecutions. Again, the impact of that, I think, will not, not make them go away. It will change their strategy, such as this decentralization strategy. Thanks for listening to Carnegie Connects. This show would not be possible without the generous support of our donors. If you'd like to support us, visit ceip.org slash donate. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to tune into the conversation live? Click the link in the description below to receive invitations to the next Carnegie Connects. Now, back to the show. If paramilitary organizations are barred in all 50 states, including the District of Columbia, how are groups like the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys and Three Percenters allowed to operate? Is it with the acquiescence and the enabling of, I mean, local law enforcement? Is it because we focus so heavily in the wake of 9-11 on a forest terrorist, foreign terrorist threat um, and not on domestic security? Um how do you explain the fact that they're able to operate with seeming impunity? Yeah, I think it's all of those things and a few other things. You know, as you just indicated, that has not been the priority until recently. I mean, we now do have the FBI director, Christopher Ray, for the last couple of years, has been sounding the alarm about domestic extremists and, and has stated that militia violent extremists are, are right up there in the top threat, along with um, uh, white racially motivated extremists when it comes to the the most significant threats to the homeland from domestic extremism, uh, more significant even than foreign terrorist organization related threats to the homeland. 
that that hasn't gone away, but just in terms of just the number of cases they have opened, the number of investigations, and just the the lethality of it. The lethality of it is certainly greater than than it is from international terrorist acts committed here in the U.S. So part of it is it's only been recently that there's been attention given to it at the federal level. Um, you know, historically, the federal attention happened when we had these armed standoffs against federal agents. You know, back in the early 90s, Ruby Ridge, Waco, Texas, more recently, the standoffs in Bunkerville, Nevada in 2014, and the Malheur Wildlife Refuge in Oregon a couple of years later. But those didn't impact most people, right? That was you know, standoffs about the use of federal lands, uh, you know, militias against the feds and um other people mostly weren't impacted. What's been so dangerous now and why I think it's getting more attention is because of their engagement with members of the public. Not only, you know, obviously when they're armed with heavy, heavy weaponry that's um, usually AR-15s and similar types of assault style rifles, not only do they manifest the ability to have incredible firepower and, and kill people, that results in intimidation or coercion, whether you're intimidating people who are out exercising their First Amendment rights to protest or demonstrate, whether you're intimidating people who are trying to exercise their rights to participate in democratic processes at their state houses, at their local county level, at their school board meetings, and they're feeling intimidated, of course, whether you're a voter, um, or whether it's uh, th these, you know, groups who are actually usurping the role of law enforcement and, you know, ordering people around and, and, you know, irrigating to themselves power that they don't have. So these things we're seeing more and more. And so the federal government is starting now, belatedly, in my opinion, to focus on it, but we haven't seen that in the past. States are getting more um, interested. I'm going to be talking to a number of uh, federal, state, and local officials next week in the Great Lakes region. We're going to be talking about these things. But historically, I don't think they've really understood uh, the law that laws exist that bar this activity. I don't think they've really had a proper understanding of the Second Amendment because there's been a very concerted effort over the last couple of decades to promote by those, uh, you know, some extremist gun gun rights absolutists to pro promote a an, an understanding of the Second Amendment uh, that is almost limitless and that is completely contrary to what the Supreme Court has told us, including Justice Scalia writing for the court in 2008 that the Second Amendment is not a you know right to carry any weapon whatsoever, any place whatsoever, and for whatsoever purpose. And and he made it very clear that plenty of different restrictions were completely consistent with text history and tradition of the Second Amendment. But that's been very much rewritten in the public eye. And even law enforcement, I have heard say, for example, after the shooting in Kenosha by someone who had joined up with the militia there, well, it was their Second Amendment right. No, it is not their Second Amendment right. So I think another reason, in addition to the lack of priority and focus, is lack of, of proper understanding of the Second Amendment. And then another reason is lack of political will. Um, because, you know, the responsibility for enforcing anti-militia and anti-paramilitary laws generally falls on elected local prosecutors and, and law enforcement. And if they are in jurisdictions that are, you know, ha harbor a lot of people with anti-government views who are Second Amendment absolutists, um, it's just hard for them to fathom, you know, 
investigating and prosecuting these violations of people who are their voter base. And that is one reason why I think the federal government really does need to take a bigger role in this. I've worked with um, uh, Representative Raskin and his staff, as well as others uh, in the Hill to, to, to craft, a, you know, some some um, uh, model federal legislation that would uh, could potentially fill some of this gap. And these groups don't stay local anyway, right? They travel. They don't always travel, but many of them do. And so it's an interstate issue. Um, one last thing I would say, because I, I don't think that I think this is important, is that it can be very dangerous to crack down on groups like this. Um, uh, we're talking about groups that are heavily harmed, groups that train in paramilitary tactics, groups that heavily recruit from the military because of their experience with not only firearms and other paramilitary tactics, but incendiary devices. Um, and so, you know, the federal government and state and local governments do have to think about what is the risk to public safety, their own safety, but also public safety if they are to investigate, crack down, bring charges against these types of private armies. And it is not an insubstantial thing. I mean, we've seen how this can break bad at places like, you know, Ruby Ridge and and even at Mal- Malheur Wildlife Refuge. Uh, and at Bunkerville, it was the feds who ended up stepping back when they had sniper rifles pointed at their heads. So it is a it is a dangerous bit of business. And a statute on domestic, a discrete statute on domestic terrorism. Um, I know you've been involved uh, in that issue, isn't going to solve the problem. I want to pick up on something you said. Again, back in March, you coined a term uh, spontaneously, and you called it flash radicalization at the Capitol. The vast majority of the thousands of people were there probably did not come to do violence. They got caught and swept up in it. Robert Pape, who testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee yesterday or the day before from the University of Chicago, has done statistical research on 800-plus individuals who were arrested uh, and charged. And what's extraordinary about his conclusions is that these people are not fringe. This has moved from the fringe to the mainstream. 90% of those, almost 90% of the 800-plus charged, are middle-class whites residing in counties which showed over the last decade or so, loss of what of the white population share. 25% are business owners, 26% white collar. Nearly 90% of those people are unaffiliated with any militia. And 53% were from counties that Joe Biden won in 2020 and urban areas, Dallas, Houston, San Francisco, New York City, Los Angeles. It's when we talk about moving from the fringe to the mainstream, we're, the, the big tent that you referred to of radicalization has a much bigger sort of base element of white Americans who are in a, any number of ways aggrieved uh, or angry uh, about any number of things. And how do you then cope with the, that group of individuals? So that that's, I think, what makes this particular time period in history so challenging. Um, you know, Robert Pape's, you know, studies are, are, are accurate as far as I can tell, but but to not being officially affiliated with an extremist group, a militia group, a conspiracy group is very different than not being influenced by 
the ideology of those groups, particularly as it is accepted by, again, elected officials, people in positions of power with prestige and members of the media. Um, and, you know, the, the great replacement theory, uh, the stop the steal ideology, all of these things that fueled, you know, that have been fueling violence, not only on January 6th, but since then, that's consumed by people, including people we think of in the mainstream, right, who are not members of a group. They're, you know, they don't go join up with their militia and train, but they are consuming through the media and through social media as well, the, the, the types of propaganda, the types of, frankly, just lies and disinformation that, um, that sometimes then drives people to do something they wouldn't normally do. And what we saw on January 6th was an example of that. I think probably the vast majority of the people there, if you'd ask them, you know, did you go to the Capitol that day in order to, you know, with an intent to violently enter would, would say no, even some who admitted that that's what they ended up doing. Um, and maybe they don't intend to ever do anything like that, but that doesn't mean that they aren't harboring these, you know, these views that are, are you know, except that they're not extreme, extreme. <laughs> um, they're not, I'll say they're extreme in that they're not based in fact. Um, and they would be extreme were it not for the fact that there, there are more and more people adopting them and accepting them. And so, you know, obviously we've had horrible times in history. We had a civil war, even when we didn't have anything like social media or online media. Um, but I think in today's world, it just makes the ability to propagate disinformation and suggest things like 1776, right? Like it's our right as as the people being, as we the people, as we've seen the Proud Boys say in, in the most recent indictment and previous indictments, to, you know, to actually take up arms against an oppressive government. That's that's where that's just kind of growing. And and that's a really worrisome thing because I, I do think there is, you know, I, I, I referenced, you know, video game and you very rightly said this isn't a video game and I totally agree, but I, I sometimes think people don't, aren't fully appreciating that, right? You don't get to just go play insurrectionist on January 6th and go back to your real estate practice the next day and pretend like our whole, everything's going to be fine. Um, you know, it's, it, it, it doesn't work that way. And the damage to our processes lingers and it stays. And, um, and that's where I think we're in, you know, we're in a real jam here and we have got to, first of all, we've got to take seriously the grievances of people who feel vulnerable to things like believing in quite uh, great replacement theory. We need to have ways to be clear that it's not a zero sum game, right? More equality for all doesn't mean all white people are going to have less. Uh, economists can support this a thousand times over, and I'm not one, but I've read what they have to say. Uh, we all we all rise up when 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 everyone is is given a fair shake, but that's just not the message that's getting through. It's something else that's getting through, and and it's going to take. You know, I I hope that there are some percentage of persuadable people who are tired of being told what to think and who really want to make decisions for themselves based on facts and evidence. And that those are the people who are going to, you know, be able to come forward and hopefully, um, uh, you know, help us to continue with our, with our democracy. Yeah. 
Is the concept, uh, the DH, the Department of Homeland Security terrorism bulletin basically said that the primary threat in the months ahead will come from, um, quote unquote, lone, I think they, I'm not sure they use the term lone wolf, but that's the term that, a term of art that's been employed uh, by many people and small groups. Is the notion of the lone wolf an accurate notion? I think it's not really accurate. I understand, you know, in this kind of a bulletin, why they might write it that way. But I think that is really um, uh, just, you know, a very small part of the picture, right? Because in in all these cases, like l- look at Buffalo, the Buffalo shooter, it's clear from, you know, his writings, his manifesto that he, I mean, he says, I was basically radicalized online. You know, I spent all my time in online, you know, forums, consuming uh, great replacement theory, consuming other extremist material, and that's, and, and became radicalized, decide to you know, purchase these weapons and and try to kill as many black people as I could. So he's only lone, like you said, because of the fact that he went by himself to that grocery store. But everything that led up to it took a lot of people and a lot of, um, you know, a, a lot of propaganda and disinformation um, that infected his head. And that's what, you know, that's what political violence is oftentimes, right? I mean, that's what foreign terrorist organizations do. They, they distribute. And now they, you know, ISIS has a leg up where Al-Qaeda didn't Al-Qaeda didn't have social media and platforms. ISIS does. They were able to very, very quickly recruit, fundraise, propagandize, and get people to travel to Syria to join them and then ultimately get people to try to, you know, to commit attacks right here in the U.S. and elsewhere around the world just through radicalization over social media. And it's oftentimes by seeding disinformation, you know, seeding the fact that the West is having a war against Islam and things like that. And the West is the oppressive state. And we're going to have this wonderful um, state of Sharia law with our own education systems and healthcare systems and our own economy, et cetera. But it was all, it was all lies, right? It was a brutal, brutal regime. And, um, and that's exactly what our domestic extremists are doing as well. And I, and I say domestic white supremacy does not end at the U S borders. This is a global phenomenon as we know from other terrorist attacks in other places. Um, But we, we certainly seem to be consuming it in, in, you know, unfortunately large amounts here. And with the numbers of mass shootings, we're seeing, and you're right to make the point early in this in this um, show that you know there's still many more other deaths by gun violence than from our mass shootings. But mass shootings are terrorism; they terrorize people. They it are it it are it is cr- crime of violence done to intimidate and coerce and to affect the policy of government through intimidation or coercion. And that's why it is more than just a local public safety threat is a national security threat and now a threat to our democracy. Right. As, as we near the end of the 45 minutes, I I do want to turn to guns, Uh, but I, I guess, let me state the obvious. One would hope uh, raising kids as, as Lindsay and I did, uh, in the 80s and 90s may have been a fundamentally different sort of environment, the way we were raised by our parents. But one would hope that the first line of defense, the first line of awareness, the first line of information about an individual would come from family, from friends, schoolmates, teachers. It, it, is has there been? I mean, 
how do you account for the anonymity of shooters who are who are living in houses with their parents, talking to their friends online, to be sure, is, am I being too idealized to expect that parents, relatives, and friends should, I guess, be exposed to clues and awareness of a disturbed individual? I mean, what what is it? Or is it just the general, in a general population, you're going to end up with individuals and families that are, are dysfunctional and are outliers and don't have these safety checks? Mm-hmm. So I'm not a sociologist or a psychologist, so I'm not really qualified to answer this. I can say that, you know, studies have shown in interviews with people who have been convicted um, of you know, terrorist attacks here in the U.S., that there there was some person in their life who thought something was wrong and didn't say something. It could be a family member. It could be a teacher. It could be a a, a, a coach, you know, or, or um, a religious leader. And too few of them stepped forward. And I think partly that's sometimes because um, a person is afraid that of sicking the FBI on their loved one, right? I mean, they don't really want that to happen. But I also think people probably live in denial. You know, I mean, um, I have kids who are now in their early 20s. And if I were to start to see suspicious things, I would like to think that I would be smart enough to do something about it. But I can imagine my brain rationalizing that's not really real. They don't really mean that. We'll have a conversation about, you know, it's not right to joke about that stuff, right? People, I think, want to rationalize a way that anything could be as dire as committing a mass shooting. Some of the young women who were talking to the shooter in Uvalde, Uvalde over social media said, I didn't think he would do it, but that's just it, right? So many of us say, I didn't think you would do it. I thought it was a joke. This comes back to my living in a video game, right? We're not living in a video game. Some of these things aren't just jokes. All right. I mean, I, in five minutes, we're not going to uh, come up with recommendations that are going to solve the gun problem in America. But I mean, the majority of Americans, roughly 100 a day, are killed with guns, either homicides or suicides. They don't constitute the, uh, the 1% of mass shootings. Uh, and we have well-intentioned Republican and Democratic senators uh, and House members busy at work on legislation. Uh, I gather that will, well, it won't be the, it's not going to be the deep end of the pool in terms of how to restrict, restrain, and deal with the proliferation of assault um, assault rifles. And I, I mean, we don't have to rehearse, rehearse all this. I want to ask you, though, Again, on the psychology, I know you're not a sociologist, psychologist, but but I think this is important. Um, somebody asked me the other day what I remember about the most, the most deadly shooting in American history. Okay? All I could remember was that it occurred in Las Vegas. All right? It was October 2nd, 2012. It was at the 91 Root Harvest Music Festival. And 60 Americans were killed. 850 were wounded. And yet I could not recall more than that. And I, I, I think our capacity to remember and to process this is limited. We are becoming, and again, I'm not, I'm just reporting here. I, I, it's tragic and it's terrible. I don't have an answer. 
we're becoming inured to these things. The Washington Post ran a piece based on some Gallup polling. The average grief cycle for an American observing these things is four days. So I, I don't I don't know how you I mean I really just there's no answer to this, how you penetrate the conscious. I thought after Newtown things would fundamentally change. Well, they didn't. They got frankly, they got worse. Legislation clearly, we live in a uh, a republic, legislation is critically important. Uh it's just uh, realistically, I see nibbling around the edges, however significant what Congress may produce may be in comparison to not doing anything. But I just wonder, in terms of uh, what your own view is of, of gun control writ, writ large, particularly with respect to automatic weapons. Yeah. So, you know, I, like you and so many Americans, thought Sandy Hook would be the time we got actual gun safety legislation. I mean, if we're talking about child, killing elementary school children, there's got, what line could be worse? And, and it it wasn't enough. And we've seen multiple schools, children, school shootings since then. And Uvalde is, is elementary school children again. And so I do think we're near to it. But I think one of the problems also is that a couple is that gun rights are now just associated with, you know, I'm a good Republican and I've got to be in favor of this absolutist view of gun rights. And there is a fear to take any other position. I mean, the representative in New York from Buffalo who said he was going to vote for gun safety legislation was immediately pressured into taking, you know, into canceling his- Within a week, he declared he was not yes. going to seek re-election. Right. And so even though the polls show the majority of people, including Republicans, favor reasonable gun safety legislation, we can debate what that means. Personally, I think we should be on all assault style rifles, but I but I get it that that's probably not going to happen right now. Um, despite the fact that the majority, they're not the ones apparently with the power. They're not the ones bankrolling campaigns. They're not the NRA or the, the gun rights organizations that are even more to the right of the NRA that are putting even more pressure on our elected officials. And so elected officials right now are just like feeling, in my opinion, beholden to this absolutist gun rights lobby. And until that changes, um, that dynamic, which is tough because the Supreme Court has, you know, really, you know, on its First Amendment rulings with respect to corporations and organizations has taken a really hard stand there. But until that changes, I think we're in a real, a real difficult time to get anything other than just nibbling around the edges uh, done. And that is completely unsatisfactory. Our numbers are, you know, off the charts in comparison to other countries. And it's, um, you know, we're killing ourselves. Uh, Mary, I want to thank you. I was depressed before this session. Now I'm thoroughly, but it, it's not true. De describing the nature of the problem is critically important to even beginning to address it. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, you're you're a national resource resource and a national asset. Um, and I really want to thank you for sharing your time and your wisdom with us uh, today. So, Mary McCord, thanks again. You were terrific. Truly appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Carnegie Connects, a production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Views expressed are those of the host and guest panelists, and not necessarily those of the Carnegie Endowment, which takes no institutional positions on public policy issues. Subscribe to Carnegie Connects on popular platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast platform. Like what you heard today? 
Learn more at carnegieendowment.org slash Carnegie Connects. Tim Martin is our audio engineer, and Catherine Buchanan and Cliff Jayapranata are our executive producers. I'm Aaron David Miller, and until next time, think positive and test negative.